Hi everyone, I'm Michael Calori and you're listening to The Gadget Lab, a podcast about the gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Ariel Pardes. Hello. Lauren Good is in another city today while we're recording this intro and we have a special guest to get to, so we're going to keep it short and tidy and then get straight to the guest. That's right, because on today's show, we are very excited to tell you that we have Adam Savage joining us. You might know Adam Savage as the co-host of the hit TV shows Mythbusters and Mythbusters Jr., or perhaps as the internet video star who appears in all the tested videos, making a costume or doing a one-day build or, like, blowing something up. Uh, the man is a, a whirlwind of energy. Absolutely. Adam is an old friend of Wired. Uh, he's been on the cover of our magazine. I think it was like the the Geek Dad issue maybe mm-hmm. six, seven years ago. Uh, we've also written a few stories about him and some of his projects. Uh, today, however, Adam is going to talk to us about his new book. It's called Every Tool's a Hammer, and it comes out next week, as well as his new show. It's called Savage Builds, and it premieres in June on the Science and Discovery Networks. And the conversation is so fun. Adam talks about obsession, about tools, about parenting, education, and a great many other things. Uh, We spent a little more time with Adam than we normally spend with a guest on the show, so Mm -hmm. things went a little long. Unsurprisingly. And because of that, we're going to get right to it without running through this week's tech news. But fear not, next week's show will be chock full of news because we have Microsoft Build and Google I.O. right at the start of the week. So we will certainly have a lot to talk about on next week's show. Yes, so please stick around next week. It's going to be a big one Everything Google announces will be discussed here on the show. (laughs) But right now, let's take a quick break and then come back to Lauren, Ariel, and myself in conversation with Mr. Adam Savage. You might know Adam Savage as the co-star of Discovery Channel's Mythbuster series, as well as the new show Savage Builds, which premieres on June 12th. He's one of the most beloved makers in science and tech. He's also a stuntman, a cosplayer, a bag designer, and now a book author. Adam, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. That was an awesome intro. I felt very productive hearing that. (laughs) Are you still a stuntman? I am still a stuntman. Actually, I just wrapped... Uh, okay, shameless plug. I just wrapped filming a new show for Science and Discovery Channel called Savage Builds, and um, I am older than when I started doing this business. <laughs> I was in my 30s when I started, mid-30s when I started Mythbusters. I'm now in, in my early 50s, um, and I feel the difference in what production requires from my body, because it's a lot. Uh, I'm in great shape, but I am sore. <laughs> How do you compensate for that? Uh yeah, that's a good question. Um, mostly what I try and compensate for in production is the stress. Like the, the, the carrying a production, uh, working with your team, making sure you're getting all the narrative stuff right. And especially for a show like ours where we want to tell the story as it's happening rather than a story that we thought we were going to tell. Which means that every day you kind of have to rejigger the narrative and figure out what you're going to do tomorrow. Um, I. Halfway through the production of Mythbusters, somewhere around year five, um, I was just too stressed out for anything. You know, I was like not getting enough sleep, I was not eating well, uh, and I was getting cranky. And so I started making sure I get seven hours every night. I stopped drinking alcohol because that just, it's not a down regulator. (laughs) I just wasn't relaxing me. Uh, And I started meditating, and my practice is terrible. I I meditate not nearly often enough, but uh, it still is one of the key uh, stress regulators. 
Let's talk about your book a little bit. Okay. If you don't mind. Not at all. No. Um, the book is called Every Tool's a Hammer. Life is what you make it, which is sort of a pun in the title because there's a lot in the book about making. And we want to know what makes somebody a maker in your mind? Uh, is it somebody who works with physical things? Is somebody who works with software? Oh, what a great question. Um, making is anytime you use your ingenuity and your desire to solve problems to reach out and do something with your will. Um, so to me, making is coding, it's writing, it's dancing, it's uh, slam poetry, it's whatever, it's, it's whenever you're creating something from scratch. And I submit that uh, when you do that, you are recapitulating your culture through your body and through your words and through your actions. And that makes you a part of the human community. So I like my whole thing about making is so many people have come up to me over the years and said, oh, I wish I had time to make. Oh, I want to do this thing. I want to do that thing. And I say in the very beginning of the book, it's a permission slip to everybody to do that thing that you think is a little weird, because I still think the things that I do are a little weird. And yet I understand after a lifetime that they are the engine of everything that I have. The book is delightful, and it functions equally as a, a manual on making with lots of practical advice and stories about how to organize your workspace and how to engage with different tools. Um, but it also functions as an autobiography or a sort of memoir of your maker story. Tell us a little bit about how you got started as a maker. Uh, I was always, I grew up in a household that was very creative. Um, my parents were the genuine article of New York West Village Bohemians. They were part of the first exodus of said Bohemians out to the suburbs in the early 70s. My dad was a madman in the 60s, did advertising. My mom was a, is, is still a working psychotherapist. Um, and so I was always encouraged to explore and to play. And you know, my first toy was Lego. And back then Lego was uh, totally open-ended. There were things you could build, but they were mere suggestions. So. It was open-ended play in the in the grandest sense. And so cardboard boxes and masking tape and the other tools that were out in my dad's studio, he was a painter first and foremost, were my first maker tools. Uh, and so it, it's always been the air that I breathe. Um, my dad rebuilt the deck on the back of our house three times, uh, each time a little better than the last, never with the permit. Um, but again, that was an example to me of like, you can manipulate your space. My parents also, they bought this big rambling house a block from the Hudson River, 25 miles north of New York. And it was big enough that throughout my childhood, they changed their bedroom location three different times, which I now realize is like, that's cool. Like when you live in a house and you're in a bedroom and then you move that bedroom, it changes all the dynamics. And I know because I just did it. My wife and I changed <laughs> our bedroom from one place in our house to another because we thought about, we started thinking about the flow of where we live in our house and we realized we were sequestered to a small part of the house and we weren't using the rest and it's a lovely house, so let's use it. And we changed and it, it altered all those dynamics. So again, that, that like, manipulating your surroundings is the example that I was grown that I was raised with at what point in your life did you realize that 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 whole ethos is something that you could do for your life like you could do professionally in some capacity um, it it didn't occur to me until 
I was probably 18. I was living in New York. I was going to NYU. I was pretending to go to NYU. Um, what were you doing in the meantime? I, well, I was I was uh, supposedly attending Tisch School for the Arts in the acting program. What I was really doing was sleeping only every third day and wandering around Manhattan. I got addicted to Manhattan at dawn. And like when you're 18 and you only really have to sleep every third day, Manhattan at Dawn is amazing. It's a zombie movie every morning. Mm -hmm. There's no one there and it's beautiful and the lights are on. It's The whole city's kind of steaming from the night. Uh, wait, what was your original question? Oh, I just wonder, <laughs> so what was the moment for you? Which oh. you said, you know, I could make a living just doing, making the stuff I want to make. Well, so one of the things that was amazing about New York and was truly amazing in the mid 80s, which is the greatest garage picking city in the world. And so everything was on the street and I would just be gathering stuff that I was interested in. I wasn't even thinking about making per se, but I would drag it home and turn it into things, take a typewriter, turn it into a hand. And I remember, a friend of mine looking at it and going, you could show this in a gallery. And I was like, oh, really? I could show this in a gallery? I mean, like, my dad's an artist, but I wasn't thinking of it. This is art. And she was like, no, this is totally art. And then I started to, you know, at that just that time, uh, there started to be this kind of steampunk or survival research lab started to come up and movies like Hardware started to come out. And I started to realize that what I thought of as a, as a creative or sculptural aesthetic slotted very well into the aesthetic of some cool uh, creative IP that was coming coming at me through movies and television and comic books. So then you segued into production. Well, I tried. I mm -hmm. tried. I tried in Manhattan for a while. Um, the places that I tried to work at, they just, they weren't very interesting. They weren't very supportive of a new person going, hey, what's that? Shut up. Stay in your lane. Um, which is not to say that that's their fault. It's just was the culture there. Um, so I ended up working in graphic design in New York. I ended up working in animation. And then in 1990, I came out to San Francisco, uh, started getting work in theater, which led to doing specifically props in theater, which led to getting a reputation for solving strange problems that others couldn't solve. And that led to getting Jamie Heineman's attention. He was running a special effects shop and Jamie hired me. And that was, that, was, that was the moment at which I realized all of these skills I'd gathered could slot into this thing and I could actually call it a career. Talking about the maker movement a little more broadly, something that Lauren and I both noticed in your book and loved is that you sort of trace the ways over time that the maker movement has ebbed and, and flowed. You, mm -hmm. you talk about sort of the recession of makers in the 90s because of the emergence of certain industries like finance and mm -hmm. tech, and then you talk about how 3D printing makes making really, really cool again in the early 2000s. And then there's this sort of like recession again where people are maybe less interested in making things physically and more interested in Facebook. Facebook, There was yeah. definitely, a, and there was <laughs> also a digital backlash. Like everyone right. was doing, you could graduate, you could, I was told in the, in the early aughts, you could get an engineering degree without actually physically making something. Which is wild, which right. is wild. Well, yeah, I wonder if you can maybe like tell us a little bit about how um, throughout your career, you've seen other makers sort of come in and out of the fold and maybe characterize the moment we're in now. Do you feel like there's a resurgence of making? Do you think there's maybe a recession of making? I think there's a resurgence right now. I think, <clears throat> I, I, it, I'm not a historian. I have been inside this thing, but I was really grateful to realize eventually that the maker movement and Mythbusters started very, very close to a similar time and that we grew up together and each helping the other. Um, 
And what I think is happening right now is something akin to post-war car culture, where you had a, a, a wider middle class in the post-war period, uh, more disposable income, car companies were making cars cheaper, and people realized that these things weren't just black boxes. They realized you could actually manipulate them. And it opened up this whole new field of hobbyists and creators and artisans. Um, I think the same thing's happening right now with electronics, specifically within making. The ease and inexpense, the lack of expense for things like Arduino boards and other uh, computers in a business card um, means that we have 12-year-old girls who are coding and like not, not fake coding, like real genuine coding. And uh, we are also realizing, and this was the Obama administration realized early to, uh, to their great credit, that equalizing access to making is a great way towards spreading the benefits of our culture and our society to every member of it that they can participate in it. Um, I'm not a big fan of what has currently been done with the gig economy, quote unquote gig economy. Mm. I think that that's a late stage capitalism term for no more responsibility for corporate entities. But, uh, and yet I also get excited about the idea that 3D, what we're calling rapid prototyping up till now, is becoming so good it's almost rapid manufacturing. And when that tipping point happens, we may go back to an almost 19th century ideal where everything you get, you get from people you know. You mm -hmm. buy things from the artisans mm -hmm. and you get them custom. I There's a scarf I saw uh, recently, a World War I pilot scarf, and I it was a rare one, but I took some pictures of it at the owner's, uh, with the owner's permission, and I was uh, sending emails to Etsy sellers last mm -hmm. night who make scarves, asking to commission this specific scarf. And I, I do that a lot on Etsy, and yeah. I love the way that Etsy itself foments interaction between the makers and the, the buyers, that I can have a relationship. And I have built many over the years with incredible artisans all over the world through that. So that gets me excited about the world. And it's really important that that access is across the board to everybody, to people of color, to marginalized communities all across the world. Um, I think I think you could see that has already happened with music. We've hit that tipping point, right? Because if you're an independent artist and you wanted to put out a, a product that people could buy, for a long time you had to have access to a CD burner because those were not common. And right. then they put CD burners in computers, and then you can make somebody a CDR. Yeah. It's still not the same thing as like a manufactured duplicated CD with like cover art and everything. But then everything goes digital, the tools get even cheaper, you don't need to burn anything, you just finish your thing, you upload it, and you have the same access to an audience that everybody has. Yeah, I, and, and that gets me really excited. And of yeah. course, it becomes difficult to get heard in that cacophony. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I don't have a solution for that. I mean, I see that happening and I try and raise the, I, one of my favorite things to do with my platform is raise the volume on makers I find and makers I'm introduced to and ones that I turn out to know who are doing incredible work that I, you know, that we can trumpet these achievements. Because, uh, I mean, Kevin Kelly was pointing out to me the other day that there's nobody who just actually has a channel where they review YouTube channels. <laughs> It's a great idea. Right? Coming soon on Wired. And I was That's like, genius. I know. And I was like, Kevin, why don't you do it? And he goes, oh, it's a good question. I don't do it because it's kind of anybody could do it. And I like to take on the projects that only I could do. And I was like, that is an awesome axiom for life. Yeah. Let those yeah. things be done by people who can yeah. do them. But if there's something that only I can do, well, that's the thing I should do. 
I want to ask you about education, but first I just want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier and unpack it a little bit, this idea of the gig economy. Explain that a little bit, because some might argue too that with the flexibility of, you know, contract work, you might be able to work on things on Mm -hmm. the side that you really want to work on as opposed to being, you know, committed. But you Um, feel like there aren't protections in place? Is that what you're... Well, I don't think there are protections mm-hmm. in place. I, you know, our, 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 the, United, the United States doesn't have protections in place for its citizens. We don't have a national health care program, which is, I would feel much better about a gig economy if such a thing existed. Um, but what I see is late stage capitalism. I mean, recently I have gotten upset at two or three customer service representatives on the phone. And when this happens now in my life, I make it really clear to tell them, I am activated, but I am so clear this is not your fault mm-hmm. and it's not your problem per se, that you know you are not the, the point of my anchor. And so I just want you to know I'm upset, but it's not at you. I am upset at late stage capitalism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what I mean is, you know, Uber is a great idea in theory until Uber just keeps on lowering what the drivers get at the, you know, to try and build something to a point where everyone can use it and nobody else can have a business in that realm. And those to me all seem like crazy, crazy goals. I'm building, a, I'm, you know, I have a bag company. I have a team of people that I work with that tested, a team I work with on my production stuff. And those folks, if, if one of the ventures that I do achieves a spectacular success, I want all of my folks, all the people that I work with on my team to share in that success. I don't want to go, hmm, how can I make more by paying everybody around me less? And that's what I see about, the gig economy strikes me as an excuse to, to do that. But that's my politics and not necessarily my expertise. Right, Would right. you like to be president? <laughs> not at all. <laughs> right, right. right, do you tell your workers that eventually they'll just be replaced by autonomous production people? <laughs> right, uh, so by, we, all, all by robots from Star Wars. That's right, yeah, exactly. that's right. Well, that would be on brand. Exactly. So, uh, Precisely. Yeah. yeah, so you you tweeted not long ago that homework is a sc- Scourge? Am I saying that correctly? Scourge. Scourge. And I don't think you meant it in the sense of like, boy, didn't we all hate homework growing up. But talk about education and how that plays into the maker movement and what you think people need to be doing to, you know, encourage kids to make stuff. So within within uh, education and the maker movement, um, I'm lucky enough, we're lucky enough to be in the city with a pinnacle of this, which is uh, Brightworks, Gaver Tully's incredible K-12 maker-based school. Um, where Gaver does things like, you know, the kids come in on the first day of school, these are six-year-olds, there are no chairs. Mm -hmm. And they make them build chairs, and they build terrible chairs. And then they teach them about chair making and joinery and woodworking, and over seven weeks, they gain the expertise to make these chairs that they will have for the rest of their lives. That is the kind of thing you can do when you don't have to teach to a test. And the lessons that the kids are learning there are absolutely a applicable across all areas of their life. I'm not saying don't teach history or economics, but geez and crow, we could teach them how to balance a checkbook and we could teach them how to build a beautiful chair and the pleasure of making something from nothing. Um, I think, so I have twin boys, they're 20 now. Uh, So I raised them in the San Francisco school district in both public and private entities. Uh, And as far as I am concerned, homework is this exhausting slog that limits family time. And one of the only, one of the, when you have a hit show, and Mythbusters was a hit within its first couple of years, um, you get this weird kind of power. Um, you get this, it, it would probably be like becoming a nationally uh, feted reporter. And all of a sudden, you could kind of talk to the CEO of your company 
but you have to be careful about how you reach out. And so the only thing I did with that early power on Mythbusters is I opened up our schedule so we had more time to film every episode so that I could spend more time in the evenings with my family. And I, I never missed dinner through 13 years of Mythbusters. And that really was super important to me. But I often sometimes did miss dinner with my kids because they had hours and hours and hours of homework to take care of. Mm. And I, you know, they're already in school for six or eight hours a day. Uh, I, and when I talked to the teachers about it, they would tell me that one of the groups clamoring for more homework were parents. That there were parents who were like, if my kid isn't working five hours a night, something's wrong. And that's just wrong to me. I want to watch movies with my kids. I want to educate them about how great the early 80s were for special effects. I want to show them Tarantino. And I, I eventually did all of that with my kids. But homework just sucked so much time out of the family schedule and mental palace. So it's more about your concerns about what that means for a family and family time together than some type of... Um, need for like an institutional correction you see or like they're not they're not really learning through homework I, look I, so again with the caveat that mm -hmm. i am not an educator i'm mm -hmm. not an expert in this field and I don't think there I are many people yeah. working hard to solve this problem every teacher i've met spends their own every teacher i have ever met spends large portions of their income on their own supplies because budgets are so thin Teachers are at the front line of a really, really difficult thing. And I like I so I want to make it so clear, like I have no problem with teachers at all. It's the institutions within which they have to function where, you know, everybody has to do good on the test. You know, the idea of meritocracy was a parody at, at the beginning. Like the, the word was coined to talk about the worst possible society. So I just... <laughs> So uh, to me, this uh, every teacher I talk to doesn't want to have to teach to a specific set of things that every kid has to learn. Um, you've got to find, you've got to give the learning where the kids are. The intersection mm -hmm. is between the teacher and the kid, not between the test and the institution and the measuring device. On the subject of school and family, there are some great anecdotes in the book, especially in the earlier chapters, about your experiences in your dad's art studio, um, sort of making things at a very young age. You also talk about um, working with your Uncle Paul, who had mm -hmm. this like amazing sort of workshop yeah. um, that you'd spend time in in the summers. And you also talk about your um, high school art teacher, who was very influential on Mr. you. Mr. Benton, yeah. Mr. Benton. Um, and it, it seems from reading the book that those experiences are deeply influential on like the kind of maker that you become and mm -hmm. the kind of creative mind that you grow into, um, which is so fun to read. But I also wonder for kids or adults who maybe don't have access to those kinds of spaces, um, perhaps increasingly less so in schools. I don't think like, you know, shop class exists at all in schools. Like how do you suggest that, that kids um, or adults get started when they don't maybe have access to great spaces or teachers or Uncle Paul's? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a great, it's a great, time to have varied and weird interests because you can go find your people online. Um, and maker spaces and hacker labs and underground bike building consortiums are popping up everywhere. And that's really exciting. That's the point that, that, that you will be able to find your people and you will be able to, uh, uh, to go build something that's in your head that you can't get out of your head. Um, again, this thing about the teaching thing, about the teaching to the test, all those teachers and all those, whether they were institutional teachers or family teachers, 
what was amazing is they saw me. And when you're a kid, when an adult looks down and goes, oh, you have this proclivity. And you're like, oh, I do? Wait, maybe I do. Just that being seen by someone who's not one of your parents is remarkable. And when it happens with a teacher in school in the cacophony and horrifying melee that is middle school, um, it's so powerful. And again, when a teacher has to is required institutionally to, to button all these things and cross all these T's and dot all these I's, and they have 30 students in every class, there's no possibility for that interaction to occur. So that's the other half is you know finding mentors, being able to go to go find them where they are. And again, maker spaces are popping up everywhere, um, but it's not equally proportionate. Like there are maker spaces, I think there's probably a maker space within five miles of every white kid in America, uh, or at there's private schools, certainly. Um, it's really incumbent on us to make sure that there are maker spaces for everybody. Uh, because again, no one should be, ex I want no one excluded. I don't think anyone should be excluded from that pleasure of making something from nothing, of contributing to your culture. Let's talk a little bit about how. Wait, you... I just want to point out yeah, just one thing. You guys have read the book, and like I wrote it over two and a half years, and it was incredible and a slog. Um, and just yesterday, I did my first two interviews on this book tour. This is my third, and it's so exciting to talk to people who've read it. It's just, this is a completely unexpected and bizarre feeling that you guys have actually read through all 90,000 words of this, and we're talking about it. It might not be all 90,000 words. Okay. We do deadlines, lots of writing deadlines and editing deadlines throughout totally the week. Understood. However, totally we, I think collectively yeah, we read no, it. Yeah, no, that's, I get it, totally. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so one of the things we read in your book, <laughs> as we read your book, oh, is that exciting. you're a big fan of knolling, yeah. and in general you believe in a very organized maker space. Uh, you love lists, you love check boxes. Mm -hmm. Talk about your process, because I think people love this sort of thing because they wonder what they can glean from it that can help them in their daily lives. So uh, my process is that my shop uh, and my making life is organized um, to a, a kind of absurd degree. I, I, and I was not always this way. I was a messy, messy young man. Um, I was a horrifyingly messy young man. And like when I think about the people that I was dating back then, I think, oh my God, I must have <laughs> just seemed like it was dating pig pen at that time. And I'm so sorry. <laughs> To all the women I subjected to my filth back then, my horrifying apartments. That's the headline. Yes. <laughs> Adam Savage apologizes to his exes. Um, but I have a, a, a late life convert to the, the beautiful power of cleaning your shop and coming in the next morning and having it waiting for you. Uh, and so I, I built a shop philosophy of first order retrievability, which is that the critical tools that I might need at any given moment are placed in my shop in such a way that I don't have to move anything out of their way to get to them. So I keep as much as I can outside of drawers. I build custom racks for all of my tools. So I have a set of Allen wrenches on my lathe and on my mill, even though they are 10 feet from each other, because that's the speed at which I prefer to work. And one of the things I realized the more I got organized was that organization is not that 5% thing that happens at the end of all your other work. It's more like 20% of my process. Uh, a really significant chunk of what I do in the shop is watch my work patterns and seek ways to make them more efficient and more intuitive for myself. Uh, so I do that by being obsessive about how I organize the things that I know need organization. 
Uh, and sometimes it's overwhelming. Again, right now we just finished production on this show and most of my shop materials left my shop to go be part of that production. And my shop was a shop-shaped room for a while, but you couldn't actually build anything in it, which killed me. Well, now everything's come back and it's just a, it's a, it's a, a, a shit fight. Can I say that? Yes, uh, okay, <laughs> good. Um, so I'm in the process of getting back to my shop and it's also changing a little bit because now I have the opportunity to see some of these things and move them around and alter them to my process. So again, it's a, it's it's always sort of the Buddhists call it watching the watcher, mm. uh, that meta look. I'm mm -hmm. always doing that in my shop. That is a deep part of the practice. And then I love sharing those ideas and those shop practices with other people like Tom Sachs or Bill Duran or Fawn Davis. I mean, like we love going to each other's shops and showing each other the ways in which we've solved certain problems. And then we take pictures with our phones, we go home and we order the same things. <laughs> and you you share them um, on video as well, right? I, yeah, no, so I love doing that on tested.com. I love showing that process. Um, YouTube is, one of the most lovely things about YouTube is the how-to videos, the generosity of people who know blacksmithing or tire changing or whatever, guitar tuning, who want to show you how they do it. Um, and I love those videos. What we do on Tested, I realized, are not how-to videos. They're what happened videos. Mm -hmm. So when I'm making something and I screw up, we put all that in because it's not about how to make connectors for NASA suits. It's about what I went through when I made them because that's the story that's interesting to me. I went through difficulty, I went through fire, and I came out with this object that I love. That is the same, that is the, I do that every single day, and it's like my favorite thing in the world. And I love, when I get to tell that story and normalize the fact that sometimes I screw up so badly, I, I feel so terrible about myself, I think I have no business making stuff. And that happens to me even though I make stuff for a living and have for two and a half decades, I still have that feeling. and. I think everyone should know that nobody escapes from that, that it is always a confusing process. And there is no there is no easy way through this thing. You just keep on having to plug away at it. And sometimes it's great and sometimes it kicks your ass. It requires a lot of research and... Yeah, you, I mean, right. The research is a key thing we talk about in this book. Um, a key thing I loved to go into, which is just like go deeper and deeper and deeper and even deeper and like... Um, I was actually watching uh, Brene Brown on her Netflix special last night, and she was talking about how like you watch a show and you watch the whole show, you watch all twelve episodes, and now you want more, so you start Googling like, who are these actors? <laughs> who are these writers? Is there are, is there a map of this city, this fictional city? Um, I love that kind of deep dive into. Oh, I'm making a prop from 2001. Well, who designed that prop? What are the rest of the things that they built? Who built it? What room was it built in at Pinewood Studios? Can I find pictures of those props in the background on a film that was shot next at Pinewood? Because the answer is often yes. Mm -hmm. you, like these kind of super deep dives can yield really, really cool information about the past. So you talk a lot about, oh, to that point, you talk a lot about obsession mm -hmm. in your book and how you think obsession is very quickly labeled as an unhealthy thing by some people. Well, look, it is we, in the DSM, right? Yeah, so, I was going to say, like, know, this comes up a lot in Silicon Valley, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have these dynamic magnetic founders who are obsessed with their product, but as a result, sometimes they're not treating workers very well, they're unhealthy work environments. I think all would agree some of the work environments are unhealthy. So yes. how do you square with that? That idea that there's like a good obsession and then maybe it's not a not so good obsession. You know, that's a really good question. 
I, I can only speak for my own experience that it's great to be obsessed that I, I, I literally in writing this, I came up with the phrase that obsession is the gravity of making that within the physics of making obsession is the, is the central thing that, that holds it together. And I, I loved writing that down and realizing the truth of it. Um, at the same time, um, I'm a big believer in balance. And I have learned through hard experience how to stay connected to my family and to my life, even within the obsessions that I am chasing as far as they can go. Uh, and so I've found in ways that I can, I found ways that I could be more disconnected from my house when my shop was in the basement than when my shop was 10 miles away, simply because of my consciousness. And uh, it, it is a value to me to be a, a a good maker, but also a good husband and a good father and a good friend. Um, so to me, the, the healthy obsessions are the ones that I can turn off when I need to so that I can uh, take care of the other parts of my life. And I, I don't mean to denigrate obsession as a condition that friends of mine suffer from. OCD is a real thing. Um, and it is something that causes a lot of people a lot of dis discomfort and pain in their lives. Um, I mean, uh, I think something perhaps fundamentally different, even though we have only one word for both of these mm -hmm. halves of the equation. Uh, before we run out of time, we want to make sure you get to tell us all about your new show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, it's so exciting. Um, we spent a lot of time on the title and figuring out when it was going to air. So it, like, I, I wanted to... I, it's, I've been holding on to this for so many months. Um, but this is my first return to television after Mythbusters Jr. Uh, last earlier this year that uh, we shot last summer. It's called Savage Builds. It is an absurd engineering show in which I build uh, things that I have always wanted to build with different amazing collaborators. And we see what happens. So this is a show in which failure is totally an option. Um, some of the things we build don't work. Some of the things we build work more spectacularly than we could have imagined. Um, it, it was four and a half months of production with my family. And by my family, I mean my Mythbusters, a, a huge amount of the crew that I worked with on Mythbusters. Uh, and that feels like coming home. I've been working with those folks as much as I can. I hire as many of them as I can on different corporate jobs and other stuff that I'm doing. Uh, but it was lovely to jump back into a production cycle. Um, we made a set of Iron Man armor. We, we made a set of Iron Man armor uh, with permission from Marvel. We got the original computer files of the Mark II suit. We 3D printed it in titanium. Whoa. And it's bulletproof. <laughs> Who did you make it with? What's that? Who did you make it with? Uh, so I made it with some incredible students and teachers at the Colorado School of Mines. Uh, we also had a, all the help in the world from EOS, the 3D printing company that makes the printers that print in titanium, um, and also Richard Browning, uh, who, whose company Gravity uh, designed and built this human-powered jetpack. Oh, right, my Iron Man suit flies. <laughs> okay. I forgot to mention that part. How do you know it's bulletproof, and how do you know that it flies? Uh, you're just going to have to watch the episode <laughs> to see how the testing procedures went, because it was... It is literally one of the coolest things I have ever imagined happening, and I'm gobsmacked. It, it worked so much better than I ever imagined it would. And that, you know, the, the reality television these days is not real. 
it is often written down in the morning and filmed like a movie. Uh, and that's fine. I don't think anyone's, you know, just the same that wrestling fans don't need to be told that wrestling is fake. Reality television fans understand the, the rules of this game. Um, but the kind of shows that I make are ones in which I present myself and my collaborators with a difficult problem to solve, <clears throat> and we don't always solve it. And that's it. we're going to follow that rabbit down the hole, and it, you know, it it's going to show really how messy the process can be. That it's an iterative process, and that's perhaps the thing that is the throughput of the book and the show is that we talk about helping kids fail. We talk about got to educate kids, teach them how to fail. We don't mean fail. Failure, abject failure, is like getting drunk and missing your kid's birthday party. That's failing. We, what we mean is that it's an iterative process. And it means that when I started writing this book, the book I ended up with was not the one I expected. And I, I believe that every creative endeavor goes that way. You start with a plan, you start with a set of problems to solve, and as you solve them, all sorts of stuff happens you had no idea about. And then the shape of this thing changes, and you can either try and force it into the shape you thought it should be, and I think we all have stories about projects that went that way, and it never goes great, or you can let the thing become the thing it wants to be. And that's, to me, what it is to be a, a creator, an artist, uh, someone who makes something, is you've got to realize at a certain point that the rules will change and you've got to follow them. You can't, you can't force them into a mold. We would love to ask you to participate in the next and final segment of our podcast, which is recommendations. Okay. This is when we go around and we each give a short recommendation for something that we're into at this moment. It could be anything. It could be an app. It could be a book. It could be a film. It could be a browser plugin. I'm pretty sure we've even recommended those. It could be food. I mean, Mike has recommended fermenting kits. It's like, yeah. you know, it's it's really, it runs the gamut. So um, who would like to start? Ariel, why don't you go Ariel, first? why don't you go? Sure. Well, I, I will say, um, Adam, your book is excellent, and I would like to recommend the book, but I'm also going to recommend another book because okay. that feels a little cheap. Um, <laughs> uh, Fair enough. So um, before you read Adam's book, which comes out very soon. Um, May 7th. May 7th. Um, there's another fantastic book that I just finished reading, which uh, just came out. It is called Machines Like Me by Ian McEwen. Ian McEwen um, is famous for Atonement and some other great novels. Are you a fan? Yeah, I, I am a fan of McEwen. I'm not a fan of how he framed this book where he talks about, it's not, where he says specifically, like, it's not science fiction, sniff, sniff. <laughs> that really pissed me off. Uh, yeah, so you Don't you denigrate an entire genre. Um, yes, I mean, uh, I agree. And I, I, I would say the idea that it's not science fiction is a little bit of a stretch it's the book the premise of the book is um it takes place in a sort of alternate reality london um where some things in history have have changed <clears throat> for example um alan turing is still alive and his uh, longer life has led to all these great advances in com computation and the development of ai and so it is not in the future but um lots of voice assistance and, and machine learning processes have become very advanced and the protagonist uh, comes into possession of one of the world's first AI humans, um, which is a sort of thing you can purchase that looks and acts and feels like a real person. And uh, the story is about how the protagonist and his relationship to this AI create all kinds of complications for his life. There's a love triangle. Mm. Um, 
so it sort of reads on the one hand like a like a love story and then on the other hand like this weird uh, alt history sci-fi narrative but the messed up aspects of that love story slot right into the McEwen that I've read yes right? absolutely <laughs> it is if you like Ian McEwen like you will love the narrative of this book um, I think uh, I found it super interesting uh, and as a person who's interested in tech history I think it's a it's an interesting reimagining of how things could have gone differently if you know certain minds were uh still around if um, certain advances came a little bit earlier. Machines like me. Great recommendation. Mike, what's yours? I'm also going to recommend a book. Uh, it's an old book. It's by a guy named Stephen King. Maybe you've heard of him. <laughs> um, it's called On Writing, and it's his memoir. Uh, he wrote it in the late 90s and early 2000, and um, it's really fantastic. I've had this book on my shelf for literally a decade, and I've never cracked it open. And then I cracked it open last week, and I finished it. <laughs> so wow. it's one of those books you just dive right into. And Stephen King, his stuff is always really breezy, so it's an easy read. Don't be intimidated by it. Um, there's a section at the beginning of the book that talks about his early life and his childhood and how he got into writing and at the beginning of his career. There's a section at the end of the book where he talks about uh, getting hit by a van while he was walking down the side of the road. Oh my mm-hmm. god, that essay is, a, that part of the book is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's, it is the, it is like almost the best part of the book. When he talks about, oh my god, I've been run over by like, one of my, my own, own characters. characters. <laughs> <laughs> that was a laugh out loud moment. Absolutely a laugh. The guy who hits him is like straight out of one of his books. Um, anyway, that's a, that's the end. But in the middle, there's this whole chunk in the middle of the book where he talks about the craft of writing. He talks about dialogue. He talks about narration. He talks about scene. He talks about passive voice. He talks about edit. So the passive voice chapter in particular, like I have, I I have been making my living as a as a writer and a journalist for decades, and I have not really been able to explain to somebody what passive voice is. I can see it, but I have to read something very carefully at the sentence level in order for it to say, okay, that's passive voice, that's passive voice. After reading this book, it just pops out at me like a bright red light. It's really incredible. So something clicked in my head, obviously, when I read it. Anyway, the whole middle section of the book about the craft of writing is like a college course in writing. Hmm. It's really amazing. So if you are a writer, uh, maybe you want to write a book of your own after reading Adam's book. Maybe you um, are starting out as a writer or a journalist, or maybe you've been writing your whole life and you just feel like you could benefit from a little bit of extra instruction. Mm -hmm. I swear, Stephen King is the best teacher that you could ask for. It's a great book and also just a hoot. I'm going to reread it. I read it years ago, and I really feel like I need to reread it because sometimes you just feel stale writing Mm -hmm. all the time. And also, I mean, it says a lot of, it sounds really cheesy, but it says a lot about perseverance. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think in the book he talks about how Carrie almost got, it was thrown away, essentially, right? And I think his wife salvaged it. Yeah. And and you just think about, like, I mean, he really treats writing like a job. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. There's no, like, oh, I'm not feeling inspired today. It's like you put your butt in the seat and you write. Yeah. Yeah, that's the best the best advice I've ever gotten about mm-hmm. writer's block. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was from Roger Ebert when he spoke at my college. He said, you just write the damn thing. <laughs> you know, Mary, that's how you conquer it. Mary Carr had this thing about how when she, when she doesn't know what to write, she copies her favorite writing mm. of other writers in longhand. Yeah. And I think it was Terry Gross who said, why? And she said, because my fidelity to the desk is to be writing. 
and I view it as I'm still writing as if I'm copying it out because I'm sort of unpacking its mystery and I'm understanding its structure as I'm doing that and I'm still holding to the what the desk requires. Mm -hmm. mm, that's pretty wonderful. On writing Stephen King. Now if you do that on the internet it's plagiarism. But as, <laughs> as long as you do it longhand like you publish, in your own yes, private exactly. book you're okay. Exactly. Okay my recommendation this week is actually from our own Ariel Pardes, our co-host. She wrote a fantastic story uh, in Wired about Helvetica Now. For all of you font nerds out there, Helvetica. Uh, excuse me, are you pro or con? Excuse me, typefaces. <laughs> <laughs> typefaces. Uh, Helvetica, which is one of the world's most popular fonts, got a refresh, or a facelift, as Ariel put it. Um, it's a fascinating read if you're someone who you're kind of interested in this stuff, but you didn't maybe perhaps realize the history of it or the way that typefaces work and how a lot of people end up licensing them or tweaking them with their own designs. You might look at this and think, oh, this looks vaguely apple-y. I wonder why. Um, Ariel did a great story on it on Wired.com, and she also did a radio hit on NPR's Marketplace about it this week. Um, Ariel, anything else to add about the story? I have nothing more to say. Okay. But um, I, I was really heartened by how much this story seemed to resonate with our audience. We have a lot of typeface nerds among our readerships. So, yeah. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Shocking. Yeah, it's like there's a Venn diagram somewhere yeah. of like wired subscribers and typeface nerds yeah. and, the, and the overlap is quite substantial, substantial. I think. So yeah. yeah. I just I think the definition of a typeface nerd is somebody who has an opinion about typefaces. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but 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 okay. So uh, my my we were watching television last night. My wife was complaining about drone shots and everything. She's mm. like, I'm really sick of these damn drone shots everywhere. And I said, okay, I think it's simply that people are overusing drone shots because it's a new technology. Yeah. Remember, I said, back in the 90s when computers first started being used for digital publishing and everyone could use every font they wanted mm -hmm. and did. Yeah. And how in the early 90s, even Wired, a lot of the typeface stuff that was coming out was unreadable, literally unreadable, red text on a black background, just awful crimes. <laughs> and that's what happens when a new technology comes. Everyone uses it in every way. Remember Mondo 2000? Yeah. Uh, and then as people, and CG went through the same thing. Really bad CG existed, but it's getting better and better and better as, as, the, as the large group of people who utilize this technology get more mature at how they use it. Yeah. So absolutely. it's growing and pains. I'm of the personal belief too that older fonts, excuse me, typefaces, <laughs> as they age, every time they get a facelift, they should just increase in size just a little bit. Because as I get older and I feel my eyes getting worse, I'm like, yes. I, I can't, I can't read Wired. What is happening? Yeah, By the way, so the two fonts just... on the cover of my book are Futura Extra Bold and Caslon, my two favorite typefaces. <laughs> Very nice. Know. Very nice. <laughs> and now for our guest of honor, what oh, is your goodness. recommendation? Okay. Uh, so, I, perhaps it's the. It, I'm totally obsessed with space in general, but this is a good year to be obsessed with it because it's the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Um, I'll be doing some programs this summer with the Smithsonian and some other groups to, to help celebrate this. Um, but as part of my deep dive, I, for the first time, picked up The Right Stuff, uh, Tom Wolfe's book about the uh, Mercury 7 astronauts. And it is about as opposite to the passive voice as you could get. <laughs> um, and I always knew I'd read the electric Kool-Aid acid test and Bauhaus to Our House and a bunch of Wolfe's smaller monographs. And I read all of Hunter Thompson. So I thought that I understood the, quote, new journalism that, that Wolf and Thompson represented sort of two, two uh, extremes of back then. But I had never read Wolf's full new journalism voice before. And the right stuff is a shockingly, what feels like a shockingly modern book. 
Um, and the way in which he makes it sound totally personal, just like someone at a bar is telling you this story. I think the opening line is like, it was six or 10 months ago. And it's like, six or 10? <laughs> this is a conversation. This isn't someone telling me facts. And that makes me more open to what's happening here on the page. Um, and he's also openly talking about the mythos being built by NASA and by the Mercury 7 and by test pilots in general of what it takes to make a great pilot. Mm -hmm. Like We now understand how much there was an American space program with female astronauts. They were totally competent. They decided to elide that because they thought the public can't handle female astronauts. And then that helped build this mythos that these Mercury 7 were the greatest physical specimens alive. And Square jaw. Yes, exactly. And it was all just horseshit. Uh, <laughs> and it, that's in Wolf's book. That's, it's, all, it's there. It's on the page. It's in his reportage. Uh, and it's a thrilling, it's thrilling to, I, the first time I picked up Moby Dick and saw what a modern tone that book has, I was really surprised. Um, and it's that thing that like something well done it feels timeless. And the right stuff is a delightful read. It's a great recommendation. I'll have to add it to the list. We've got a lot to read. <laughs> yes, we do. And that's that's not a small book. <laughs> um, Adam, how can people find you on the Twitter? Uh, I am Don't Try This on Twitter. Uh, I regularly make videos about making on my website, tested.com. I think I'm the real Adam Savage on Instagram. Um, and I don't know any of my other social media addresses by heart. That's all right. Uh, the book is called Every Tool's a Hammer, Life is What You Make It by Adam Savage. It comes out May 7th, and the show is called Savage Builds, and it premieres on Discovery on June, June 12th. 12th. And uh, uh, I am about to head out around the United States on a book tour. Uh, you can find out where I'm going at adamsavagebook.com. Adam <laughs> Uh, and if I'm coming to your area, come on out and see me. Boston, I'm looking at you, Boston. There's still plenty of tickets available. Come on out. <laughs> um, Lauren, how can people find you on the Twitter? I am at, oh, my handle is so boring compared to all of you guys. I'm <laughs> at Lauren Good with an E at the end. One of these days, I'm just going to change it to with an E. <laughs> I'm at Pardesoteric. I am at Snackfight. And, of course, you can find all of us at the Gadget Lab Twitter, which is at Gadget Lab. So thanks, Adam. Thanks, Thank everybody. You. Thanks Thank for listening. Thank you. This we'll has be been so great. It was really fun. Don't just say that.